Hi, everyone, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town, and I'm thrilled to tell you that my dad and I wrote up everything I've been learning on the podcast and in my investing practice from him, from Warren Buffett, and from Charlie Munger. And I turned it into a memoir of one year of my life from knowing nothing about investing to starting this podcast and then learning enough about investing to actually be able to invest on my own with confidence. The book is called Invested. How Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger taught me to master my mind, my emotions, and my money, with a little help from my dad. The book has the rule number one principles of investing in it, but it also goes far deeper than my dad's other books into very clear methods of how to research companies step by step, you know I need those steps, putting your money where your values are, financial valuation, the worst. Guys, I figured it out. I put it down. It's in the book how to read financial statements, how to deal with the fear inherent in investing that we all feel, how to read the markets, all the stuff I force him to tell me about. And it gets pretty personal into our relationship because money and family relationships are so intimately intertwined for all of us. There's no other investing book like this, and it's available for pre-order now. So it turns out that pre-orders of books are extremely important so that bookstores and newspapers know what's popular before they come out. We don't have ads on our podcast, and we never have, as you know, and thousands of you have listened for free. So we ask you now, if you listen to the podcast, do us a favor and reserve your book now. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or from your local bookseller. They'll all pre-order it for you. And I know you're thinking you'll just buy it when it comes out. But really, this is how important pre-orders are to us. We're putting together a fabulous bunch of gifts for everyone who reserves their book now, which frankly have a dollar value of far more than the book itself. And we'll have details out very soon on the podcast so that everyone who buys it before the book comes out will receive those free gifts. And all you do is email a receipt. Super easy. Thank you so much for being part of this practice, everyone. And please, if you like what we provide here on the podcast, please pre-order Invested now. It's the perfect complement to the podcast itself. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. From the Invested Podcast. We're so glad to be here with you guys, where we're learning about investing, basically from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And... uh, yeah, and that's where we're going. We're going to be talking about something today that we haven't talked about before. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are value investors, mm-hmm. and you do rule number one style value investing. Mm-hmm. That kind of strategy involves looking at the moat management, the understanding of the company, mm-hmm. and the margin of safety. The margin of safety in the price, which gets created. There, I did the in intro for you. In our view of investing, this is a little different. Uh, with value investing is covers a broad range, yeah. right? It's basically when you're looking at an opportunity to buy the company for a price less than the value. They call that value investing. It was invented by Ben Graham, who's Warren Buffett's teacher, and that's what we follow. But over the years, some things have been modified. There are value investors who have large portfolios of 100 stocks that they just buy a lot of cheap stuff and like get, you know, pay less or something. And they're, they're, they're hoping most of it works out. And it usually does pretty well. And then there are value investors like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and, and me who are looking to buy really high quality companies. But we're not gonna be so active in the market. Mm-hmm. We're gonna be very patient and wait 
for a really high quality company to come along on sale. And what, what we do and what we teach is to wait until something has happened, an event has happened, that puts a lot of things on sale, mm -hmm. including the companies you like. So we work at making a list of companies. We might buy maybe 20 companies in our whole lifetime. And we just might buy them over and over again. You buy them when they're super cheap, we sell them when the market gets too high, and buy them back. So right now, we're in the sell them mode. We're in the sell them mode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're, we're asking, what do we do in this market, this, this taking off crazy wild market? And you know what we're doing and what we notice a lot of other guru types are doing with their portfolios is they're either going and buying private companies or they are simply sitting in cash and waiting for this market to correct. Yeah, I'm laughing at the we're in the sell them mode because I haven't really made it to the sell them stage of learning investing. <laughs> I feel like I'm still in the, I think that's why I have so many questions about what to do now because I'm in the, in the first bit of like, okay, I've learned some stuff, I've practiced some stuff, I want to buy some stuff. Like I'm not, I haven't made it to the sell so right, much. Right. Well, right now the market's being driven by an awful lot of artificial things. For example, just to show you how markets get driven by crazy stuff. There's a lot of people in China who have gotten very wealthy and they're concerned about a crackdown on moving money out of China. Hmm. And so of course they're moving money out of China. Mm -hmm. To, to preserve that wealth in different currencies than the yuan and away from a totalitarian government that could crack them down. And so they've moved that money, for example, into Vancouver, into Vancouver real estate. And so now you have these beautiful high-rise buildings in Vancouver that are 75% vacant, mm -hmm. um, but which are selling, these apartments are selling for a cap rate of under two, like one and a half cap, one cap rate two cap rate. Which means that in the first year, you would expect a one to two percent return on your money. If you paid all cash for the, it, from the cash, so yeah. you pay, let's say you pay uh, $10 million, excuse me, I can't do the math on that one, a million dollars, you would get $10,000 of rent or 20,000, right? Um, which wouldn't cost, wouldn't cover your tax bill. Hmm. So, you're you're looking at actually that's not true. Yeah, that's not the quite tax bill's the, included. The tax bill has already been paid <laughs> in that scenario. Yeah. So it would give you a little bit of cash flow, but not very much. And that is historically a really, really expensive price price on real estate, being driven by some artificial outside of the market yeah. world. Yeah. So Vancouver's trying to crack down and slow down that purchase process because it's killing the locals from buying any real estate. London has the same problem. There's so much foreign money buying real estate Toronto's there. Toronto's getting the same problem. New yeah. York's getting the same problem. Yeah. Newport Beach is getting the same problem. Okay. So all this money's flowing in and driving the price of real estate artificially. Well, the exact same thing is happening in the stock market. Just as money is flowing in like crazy into real estate, money's flowing in like crazy into the stock market from all over the world. People trying to diversify into the US market with dollars and there's nowhere else for US investors to go. As we just said, real estate's really expensive. Bonds are producing, a 10-year bond is producing a 2.5% return. It's ridiculously low historically. So you can't go there when inflation's looking like more than that. So you're actually losing money if you put your money in a bond. 
Okay. And where else can you go? So people are taking their money and they're putting it, and the government makes it very easy by making it pre-tax to put it into the stock market. So that money's going into the market, and as we said last time, it's going into index investing more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And those index investors are simply purchasing a basket of stocks and driving those stocks up, which encourages more money to come into the market. So right now the market is priced historically at a place we have never, we may have never seen this price relationship, or at least for many, many years back before the index is actually created, between the Wilshire index, which is all the stocks in the market basically, four or 5,000 stocks, compared to the gross national product or gross domestic product, GDP. Typically that relationship is that the market price versus the whole price of all the stocks in the market versus GDP, they're about even if things are really pretty expensive. And it can be you know 30 or 40% when things are really cheap, like the market's 30% of GDP. This is an indicator that Buffett uses. It's an indicator Buffett's talked, talked about. about. It on, oh, we talked about it, yeah. yeah uh, about and it. you've mentioned it on the podcast a few times. And it's now like what, like 150 or something? 155 right now. 155%. In other words, where 100% is pretty pricey, this is 50% higher than that, or a third higher than that, 155%. Mm -hmm. And we haven't seen that since they built this index, clear back into the 60s. Not only that, but Robert Schiller, who got the Nobel Prize in 2013, an economist at Yale, built this tool that creates a relationship between I don't know price if that's and the correct. value. I was like, is that the correct year? Yeah, it's pretty close. I think close enough. Close enough. And he got this he got this tool that's called the the cyclically adjusted PE ratio. And he looked at the S&P 500 for 140 years and in 1928-29 it got above 30 this ratio. It averages at about 16. 1929-1930 it got above uh, 30 and then crashed. It got above 30 substantially in 1999 and then crashed. It got up there slightly above 25 in 19 in 2009 and crashed. Okay. And now it's at 32. So it's only three times in history has it been in 140 years has it been where it is now. So we have some strong indicators of why so many of these gurus are going to cash because they really think this thing is has to tumble. Also, just the economic cycle we, we tend to see a recession about every 10 years or less, five to 10 years. It's been 10 years now since we've had one. So we, we see investors out there starting to protect themselves, starting to take money off the table, letting these other people come in, letting the market roll. You know, So you ask what to do right now. I mean, if you're doing what they're doing, you're going to cash more and more and yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talk about those indicators in our new book, mm -hmm. Invested, which is not out yet. It'll be out March 27th. Yep. Um, and go into where to find those and everything. And it's really a sobering look at what's happening right now because it all seems so great. Like, yay, the market's up. But when you actually know a little something about it, it's a little bit like the market's over what it should be. Yeah, and people always try, who are on the side of let's go higher, they always try to come up with some reason why now it's different. Yeah. Right, so 1928, there was now it's different stuff going on. 
1999, oh, now it's different, it's the internet. Um, right now, now it's different because, uh, I don't even know why, it just because Trump is cutting taxes, because there's, I know, think it's whatever. because there's been so much government intervention by, uh, what would they call it when they put all the money out? The Federal Reserve? No, no, no. <laughs> yes, they did it, but what would they called it something? Some oh, like quantitative term. easing. Yes, exactly. What a classic term for yeah. we're printing money. Yeah. Yeah, so they did all this. And by the way, just just to keep an eye on what's really going on in the economy, they put out $4 trillion into U.S. banks that hasn't been released into the U.S. economy yet because they're making them lock it up as a reserve. Oh. But the Republican administration is lowering those reserves as oh, we speak. Seems like a bad idea. Allowing them to open up the, the well, they want to see people get jobs. Again, in the, so in the name of- short-term decision-making in the name of political expediency. Very, very scary if that all comes flowing in at once. And they also just passed a tax law that's encouraging corporations to repatriate money that they've held overseas for tax reasons. Yeah. There's two trillion sitting over there. Like Apple alone has 200 billion. So if that all comes back and everybody pays this minor tax bill, uh, we would have, let's say roughly $6 trillion of new capital flowing into this market, which would cause a lot of people to feel rich. Well, that would be something different. Mm -hmm. That would be something different. <laughs> and then you might see this explosion in the stock market as it goes up, responding to more people buying, more consuming, more profits, more consuming, more profits, more consuming, mm -hmm. more jobs, more money, more raises. Mm -hmm. And bam, pretty soon you start to see inflation kicking in. And when you do that, then what happens is the Federal Reserve raises interest rates aggressively, raising them quite high. In 1980, they raised them as high as 14%, I think maybe even a little higher and jacked up the interest rates. Right now they're 2.5. Imagine what would happen if they went to 14. You shut off real estate, right? Real estate goes down, so you put that into a recession. You cut down on the amount of loans being made to people, so all of a sudden they're not consuming. Mm -hmm. And when you don't consume something, if you don't consume, then that's somebody's job that doesn't get paid, right? Your consumption is paying somebody's job, wages. And so now they don't have those wages, so now they default on their loans, and now as a bank starts to, oh, crumb, we, we now have to not lend money because we're defaulting, and they're gonna take our bank away from the regulators, and everything cycles down into a big recession. And then it starts over again. And this is the cycle that is called the business cycle. Now, here's something really scary. This business cycle of five to 10 years of, of uh, inflation, recession, inflation, recession, inflation, recession, has created more debt overall. In other words, every one of these cycles starts over at a higher amount of debt nationwide mm. than we had when we started. Mm -hmm. And we started this process over again in the 1930s with the depression. So we wiped out all this debt, all right? It's gone because everybody defaulted and the banks failed and all these things happened. So now they started over at zero. Well, it's been, what, 85 years? Pushing 90 years. And Ray Dalio, who's a brilliant investor, is arguing that we're at the end of the major credit cycle and there has to be a complete debt wipeout. And it's gonna come subtly and quietly and we're gonna get through it okay or it's gonna come in the form of a giant depression and world war. But it's going to come. Okay. I know, so, I know. You've talked for like five minutes about how everything is the worst. What's the... It's very, very interesting what's going on right now. 
what's the uh, what's the solution? Well, I doubt there's As a solution. Investor. What would one do today? All right, I'll just repeat Buffett. It's pretty straightforward. When you see this economic storm on the horizon, then you prepare a wash tub. So this is the, oh, sorry, I'll let you finish. And you go outside when it starts to rain with a wash tub. Right. And, and it fills it up tub, with gold. The wash tub is a big bank account full, full of, of money. Cash. Yeah. Wash tub is cash. Yeah. So that is the, you know, we're back to what we've been talking about now for like two months, which is that people are just staying in cash. They're not f investors, guru investors. Guru investors. A small, small smidgen of the investors are out there are staying in cash. If you listen to this podcast, you're going to think everybody's in cash. Right. But basically nobody's in cash. Right. Everybody else is following this market up. Yeah and making money yeah. and all the rest of us who are trying to do like value investing are like, well, <laughs> not really doing too much. Got my wash tub ready. Not doing a lot. That wash tub's been ready for a little while. Yeah, and now comes the pain for value investors. The pain is in the last couple years of a real explosive market. It's very easy for this market to move up aggressively with all of this good news and yeah. good emotion yeah. and nowhere else to go. So get ready for the market to double. The market could go to 40,000 here. Um, it did it in Germany before its enormous crash in, in 1920. It, it doubled in two, three years in 1927 to 29. You know, it just explodes up in the last years of a frenzy. You know, the tulip mania, the, the huge bubbles that go up. Look at what real estate did from 2005 to 2007. You know, people were buying houses and flipping in a couple months mm -hmm. and making big profits. Mm -hmm. So in the last throes of a big bubble, you're gonna see an explosion in prices. And that's the hardest thing for, for investors that do what I do and what Bubba do, is to stay patient, to stay rational, to not start to reach for this bubble that everybody else is participating in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so basically, we got it. Yeah. Get the wash tub, yeah. AKA, try not to follow the market up unless you find something really special, and then. Yeah, now having said that, this is for those of you who are actually sitting in an index fund, all right? You're in an index fund, you're trying to stack up money for retirement. You're in a broad market mutual fund. You've got a 401k. You don't have the choice of just you know, going to cash and then putting your money into individual stocks. That's I've got a little different advice for you guys. Tell me. Slightly. I'm, I hesitate. <laughs> <laughs> because this, this could be mis misunderstood. Okay. I can handle nuance. All right, good. But let's put big blinking nuance disclaimers around All it. All right, huge disclaimers here. Yeah. This is not advice. This is not a recommendation. This is just some facts about how some investors, including me with our students, are also dealing with this run-up. Oh, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say options, right? No. Oh, what are you going to say? I could say options. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go that deep into what are you, the water. What are you going to say? Um, that if you have a fund, if you have retirement investment capital and it's in an index or a big mutual fund that's very broad market and it's going up like crazy and you're feeling like, wow, this is really good, there's no indication that this crash is on the horizon. 
-hmm. None at all. Mm -hmm. We follow tools that are tracking what big investors are doing in the market just in terms of their cash flow. And the cash flow is going in, not coming out. Mm -hmm. So if it was me, knowing what I know, with an index fund, which I don't have, but if I had one, I would stay in. Okay. In spite of what I'm saying about get the wash tub ready. And the reason is, is because when this does start to tumble in a year or two, well, first off, it could take a year or two. And during that year or two, this market could go to 40,000. And if you stay in, you're going to get the benefit of that. You'll have twice as much money than you do right now, which would be fantastic, okay? And the second thing is when the market does start to tumble, it doesn't tumble, very rarely does it tumble all at once. It starts to roll down and tick up and then roll down some more. There's some events that occur, that, or maybe not even, and it starts to, to tumble this market. When that happens, tools that exist out there will show you that the big guys are starting to exit the market, that the money's starting to come out. It's not flowing in anymore. The river's turning and the tide is turning and it's coming out. And as the tide hmm. starts to go out, it shows that on some very specific tools. I so would I'm very strongly say not advice. Not advice. Purely your opinion. Right. Because I'm not sure I agree with it because it could totally tumble without warning. Yep. I mean, it, you I know, mean, somebody you would have flies to a plane into the White House, it could, it could tumble without warning. So it could be a big shock. But I'm just saying that You have to be like on it with your news, with your alerts with your information to be ready to get out. And you have to know what you're doing with this stuff, but my students have learned how to do this, and I would say to them, if you're comfortable with these tools, these are called indicators, when they fire all red, then you exit. And when they're, then right now they're just all green. Hmm. And if you've done that, for the, I know that if you've done that historically for the last 20 years or so, you'd have done quite well. You would have made three times more money than just sitting there, and you wouldn't have been in the market when it crashed badly. Mm -hmm. So those two things are really helpful. First, you make more money. Second, you don't have the, the, the emotional crisis that happens when the market drops 50%. So I just want to say that as a caveat, that my students have a little different way to go here if they're not in individual stocks. If they are in individual stocks, if you're in individual stocks, then you're going to look at those companies and you're going to determine whether you want to stay in those companies because they're cheap or they're not yet at their full value. Um, and if so, you're happy to buy more if they go down. Otherwise, we just sell off these companies when they're at a high value price relationship. So if the price of the company is at or above its value, then my portfolio, we sell right there. We're gonna go ahead and get out and take those profits and we'll sit quietly. Because here's the thing. I can sit in cash for five years and do nothing while the market goes crazy and wait for the market to just crash. And when yeah. it finally crashes, get in there. And again, not trying to figure out where the bottom of the market is any more than the top. I don't know any more than anybody else does. But when things get cheap, based on like the 10 cap method we were talking about last time, yeah, then I buy them. And then the market could keep going down, but we'll buy more in that environment, right? We'll stockpile in. All right. Now, we talked a little bit about 10 cap. Yeah, that's where I was going to go with next. But I also said there's another way of you looking at this. You said there's some other ways of looking at it. Right. 
Exactly. So the next way to think about this this idea of ten cap. Ten cap is and this is again pricing. Mm-hmm. People don't know. Try what to 10 price cap is. a price a company. Say okay, what's a good price to buy a good company? So the answer is from Warren. Just think about it like real estate. What's a good price to pay? For a house in a good neighborhood that's going to be a good neighborhood for the next 20 years, what's a good price to pay? Mm-hmm. And the answer is you pay a price that's 10 times the owner cash flow or owner earnings. Okay? So the good price, a really fair price, fair, good, super, awesome, would be 10 times the owner earnings of that piece of real estate next door. So if it's earning you $10,000 a year, that's what you can put in your pocket after all the expenses, taxes, insurance, and a fund for maintenance. You're putting that in your pocket. Times 10 is what you should pay for that property if you can find it for that. Yeah, well, owner earnings has a very specific uh, formula that we put in our book right. and invested. So this would be a good reason to go get the book because we're not going to go through it on the podcast. Dear God, we are not going <laughs> to go through it. I mean, maybe, maybe we will at some point when the book is sitting in front of us no. once it's on sale, but right now I'm definitely not going to do it. Um, but yeah, there's a, like, owner earnings is something that Warren Buffett talks about yep. kind of obliquely, like yep. in a, oh, I do this thing and I call it owner earnings and I'm not really going to tell you the details so right. much. But you've read so much about what he's talked about, like all the, all the times he's mentioned it, mm-hmm. and you put together an actual formula for owner earnings, and I think our book might be the first time it's ever been put out. Where it's just really laid out Where it's solidly. really laid out in a you know, basic, simple way yeah, It takes away beginners. the guesswork. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's, uh, all the other formulas, you, you have to sort of guess about some things. And there are people who have very sophisticated versions of it, and right. this is not that, obviously, because right. I don't want that. Right, so we're just making a very conservative view of But it's pretty earnings. cool, and I'm glad that we put it in the book. And it, it works really good for real estate, by the way. it works really well. <laughs> now, the catch is, if you go out to the Vancouver market and try to buy a house with a 10% cap rate, or in other words, 10 times what its owner earnings are, you will discover no one will sell you that house. Okay. They will sell you a house at, oh gosh, let's see, 50 times owner earnings. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay, now your $10,000 instead of being a $100,000 house is a $500,000 house. So you see in what o- happens? In order to make $10,000. You have to pay you 500 to, grand yeah, yeah. and you will get owner earnings of $10,000, yeah. um, which represents a 2% return instead of a 10% return. Mm-hmm. So now I want to introduce this idea to you that's okay. used on Wall Street all the time, okay. which is called earnings yield. Earnings yield. Earnings yield. Okay. So essentially, it's... We have never discussed this. No. This is a first. Yeah. Okay. So take a deep breath. Here we go. Okay. Earnings yield is the earnings of the company divided by the price. Okay. Sounds a lot like 10 cap. Sounds pretty simple. Yeah. So the earnings of the company, let's say it's $10 a share divided by the price, let's say the price of the company is $500. Mm-hmm. So the earnings yield is, what did I say? I already forgot the numbers that you said. <laughs> $10 divided by $500. $10 divided by $500? Yeah. I don't know what that is. 2%. Sure. There you go. So it's about 2%. So the earnings yield on the company is about 2%. and. Um, that is a way that a lot of 
investors on Wall Street will look at stocks. They're going to look at the earnings yield. Now, now that is so much easier than figuring out owner earnings with our fancy formula. It is from Warren Buffett. It is because earnings is a number that's everybody reported. has. Everybody has. Now the problem with doing earnings and the problem with Wall Street is that they're pricing things based on fiction. Yeah. You can't spend earnings. Earnings are an accounting fiction that is manipulated that. aggressively by management teams that want to look good. I'm writing, but earnings, <laughs> exclamation point. Are fictional. They suck. And more and more you're seeing in this market as the market price gets higher and higher for stocks and these executives want to look good, which means their stock price goes up while they're working there and they get their options and they get all this good stuff that makes them drive that stock price up. What they're now doing on their earnings report is talking about adjusted earnings, mm. which are not even generally accepted accounting principle earnings. They're just the company saying, yeah, those are our earnings, $10. But really, we had this extraordinary expense over here, and we really shouldn't have to count those stock options we gave those executives over there. So really, if you look at it this way, we made $20. And so really, we're giving you a yield of 4%, not 2%. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Now, they do that because earnings yield is the, I'm going to guess, inverse of P-E ratio. So a P-E oh, ratio yeah, it is. You're right. is the price of the company divided by the earnings. Yeah. Earnings yield is the price of the company divided into the earnings. Mm -hmm. So we're just flipping it on its head. So what the- And yet we talk about P-E ratios as- Regularly. We do, we talk about it regularly because that's used much more commonly. But I, I wanted to show you that this concept of earnings yield is actually fairly embedded in Wall Street. Okay. It's just the inverse of P-E ratio. So value investors go out and look for high earnings yield, low P-E ratio, because those things are the same coin. Well, and essentially that's what we're doing in the 10 cap formula, except that we're using a better number. Yes. Oh. Yes. With the owner earnings because of the fallacies of earnings not actually reflecting the money that the company actually has. Yes. That's what that's why Warren Buffett does this like whole arcane whatever he does to figure out owner earnings that we're approximating. Right. Um, so that he can actually know what money the company made. Right. Full stop. Right. That's the money that counts. Because it's so many companies have good earnings because everybody's targeting on that. Mm. But the money never makes it to the investor. Mm. The owner never sees the money. So it's like you have this house, right? And you've got the rent coming in. But for some reason, your property manager uses up all of the extra rent money above and beyond the expenses of the house by increasing the expenses. He's constantly improving the house. Um, he raises his salary a tad. He's paying everybody a little more. The garbage guys get a tip. You know, he's being a good guy out there. Everybody's doing well, right? And oh, let's let's add a room to the house. 
ah, shoot, man, that's going to use up five or six years worth of earnings. Okay, well, that's going to come out in the long run an improved value of the house. But he never stops doing it. Never stops doing it. Because he's not, he doesn't own any of the house. He's getting paid a salary and he gets options on the future price of the house when mm -hmm. you sell it. Mm -hmm. And that combination puts him in a totally different position on the table than you're in. He's on a different side of the table. And so there are many companies out there where the owners never actually see anything increase in their value, in, in, in cash flow. So Buffett, who... But they do see the stock price go up. They may see the stock they, price go which up. Which they approximate for increase in value. Right, which they approximate for an increase in value. But the question is, if it never stops, what do you really get if you own that business? Yeah. If you really just own the business. Because theoretically, the value of a business is the cash flow that you would get from it. So back in the Depression, a lot of investors thought the only value of a business is the current value of its future dividends, hmm. what it would actually pay you, hmm. right? So because the stocks went down and stayed down for a generation, right? I mean, if you bought stock in 1929, you, you basically had a zero return until 1955. I mean, that's an entire generation of investors. Really? Yeah. You, it got back to even oh in 1955. Gosh. Oh my gosh. That's a long time. That's a really long time. Right, a really long time. And so investors started to learn during that very long time that the right way to look at things in terms of valuing the price of the stock is to forget the price of the stock. What is the dividends doing? Because that's all you're gonna get. Yeah. We may be headed there, as an aside. We may be headed back to those days once this market just gets too fluffy, um, where really people are looking at, what am I getting from cash flow on these companies, period. Your uncle Steve invests in just I almost entirely like that. Yeah, I've met a number of people who do. It's a whole strategy unto itself. Right. And. It's one that I think is very interesting, especially combined with finding great companies with great missions and great yes. management. If they're also choosing, and we talk about this in the book a lot, because I think it's such the book in Invested. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of the book? It's called Invested. It's and you can pre-order now. It's written by us. Um, <laughs> I hate, I hate, I just want people to know like what the name is, that's all. I'm not trying to be obnoxious That is so it. funny. Invested is written by us. I love that. That's excellent. <laughs> Try to order it from your local bookstore, by the way. Please, yes, I'm glad you said that. I, I didn't want to take too long, but yeah. whatever, let's take a while. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we love Amazon. I love Amazon, so oh, like, yeah. I'm not hating. We love it so much. It's it, we're really encouraging you guys not to use it. Yeah. Because it overwhelms that one channel. Exactly. We want to spread out the love. Yeah, and like support your local community and those amazing people who are sustaining local bookstores. Yeah. I just would love it if if you guys would order it from them. If you can't, cool. Like order it from somewhere else. But um, yeah. but yeah. Just Barnes and Noble has a great website you can order from. That's true. Yep. That's Online. True. Um, books a million. Yeah, that's so another there's, good one. There's some good, good resources out there mm -hmm. that are not your local bookstore. But if you have a local bookstore, go do, get it from them. Call them up and say, I want to order this book. Yeah, yeah. They will love you. They will. Um, so in the book, we talk about dividends and that strategy of buying based on dividends or not based on dividends. And you're, I mean, we've done episodes on this about dividends being just one way that companies can use their extra cash. Right. 
but I can kind of see the argument, and maybe we should talk about this more in the future, that it's um, as an investor, not necessarily as a company strategy, but as an investor choosing companies that use their cash in the way of dividends might be a good way to go. It is a great way to go, but there's a problem with it. Yeah. There's a catch. What's the catch? And that is that in order to get a company to pay you dividends, you have to own the stock. And that means you have to buy it. And that means you have to pay the market price. And that means if the stock is massively overpriced and you buy it, you may wake up one day with the price of the stock, 50% of what you paid for it, and you may wish you didn't purchase it to get the dividend. Totally. No, I was, I thought we had skipped over that option. No, I meant like find. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> I mean, because it's so tempting for people to look where they can get good dividends and forget that there's a company underneath there that they paid for. Oh, okay. So what I meant is this company meets every other rule one criteria. Oh, Nirvana. Period. Nirvana. And they are. So, I mean, we've discussed this before, but like two companies similarly situated and both good roll on companies and one is paying out dividends and the other one isn't, which do you choose? Right. Now your answer is probably choose the one that isn't paying out dividends because they're using their money to support the company maybe. Well, if they have a high return on equity and no debt. Oh, details. Okay. Then I would, and, and what that would mean essentially is if they're not paying dividends, they're able to make a great return on my money Right. Without giving it to me, where well, now I got to go look for a place to put it. Right. So that is that is a, a kind of my default view. Yeah. Um, but, but that said. That said. If you're trying to come up with an income and you're doing this sort of income focused exactly. investing. Yes. I can see an argument for choosing the one that is offering the dividends, as long as. Right. Because I think that it creates this really messed up set of expectations where people start expecting to get the dividend, mm -hmm. even if the company would actually be able to use that money elsewhere within the company in a better way. Right. And companies know that and everybody knows it, so they keep paying out the dividends. Right. Because once they stop, people start thinking, oh, there's something wrong. Stock price goes down. Right. Stock price goes down, so it, it, executives it's, get it's fired. It's a little bit of an issue, but that's why I think it's so important for that prerequisite to be, it's a great company and you would buy it regardless. It's a great company. And, and to read something about that, if you guys want, you can go to rule number one, the book I wrote in nineteen in 2006, and I go into General Motors yeah. as, a, as an example. This is before General Motors went bankrupt, but they were visibly screwing their investors mm -hmm. by borrowing money when they were in deep financial trouble, borrowing money to keep the dividend going. Right, so executives will do any sort of heinous thing to keep you thinking everything is okay. Never forget that. You always have to watch what's going on in the companies that you own. So dividends, very, very valuable. Buybacks can also be valuable because they're a way of getting you back capital. We've talked about that a little bit. Buybacks are when the company buys its own stock on the open market. Right, so it doesn't need the cash for other things, right? That's a criteria. Doesn't need it, certainly not borrowing money to buy back its own stock. Mm -hmm. And many companies do do that. Um, and there's a heinous reason for management to buy back their own stock because it supports the stock price or even raises the stock price. And that makes their options more valuable. So these guys are 
they, they'll mess with you big time. You really have to understand the business that you own. That's just yeah. fundamental to the whole thing. Yeah. And then be very, very aware that as you go toward retirement, you'll want to shift your portfolio to one which is producing a lot of cash flow. You don't want to be market um, hmm. market bound. You don't want to be market connected when you're in retirement. You want the market to be able to fluctuate, go wherever it wants, but your wonderful companies are keeping you nicely in cash flow on a beach someplace. That's where that you want to have the dividends. Gosh, we have just been talking about all sorts of things today. I know, it's really cool. <laughs> but I guess we got to stop. <laughs> all right, so go pre-order the book and uh, get ready to get a great book in uh, Mar March 27th, it'll ship. Yeah, and, there's uh, so much stuff in there that we've touched on or not touched on on the podcast that really we're gonna be talking about a lot. Coming up. Totally true. All right, so until next time, time to go play. Thanks everybody. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play. <laughs>